Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I also can be found on all of the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I also have a blog that you can check out, and that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021, and we're going to continue on with our top 10 of 2021. And in the last episode, we went through items 10 through 6, and we're going to pick up today with item number 5. And I think in this episode, I'm going to do items 5, 4, and 3, and then I'm going to do separate episodes for both the number 2 and number 1. And I think I've got enough time to squeeze that in before December 31st. So let's talk about number five, a little drum roll there. And that is the formation of the Constitution Committee and then the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And I've done a number of episodes on this Constitution Committee I'm not going to repeat all of what I talked about. I'm going to summarize a little bit here and talk about why I think this is so important. But you had the formation of this Constitution Committee really in early August of 2021. And this is on the backside of the name, image, and likeness debacle where Mark Emmert and the NCAA dumped all their nil garbage on the feet of the member institutions, literally. At the last minute, uh, the announcement on the interim name, image, and likeness policy, which wasn't a rules change, it was just a policy, that came out seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, the day on which about six state name, image, and likeness laws were going to go into effect. And the, the failure of the NCAA on nil on multiple levels, and I'm going to talk about that in this episode as well, but that failure was an epic disaster for the NCAA. And even though the NCAA tried to put a good face on it and Mark Emmert through his spin doctors and the NCAA propaganda website tried to make it seem like a victory for athletes and athletes' rights, it was just the perfect example of how the NCAA does business. And we'll talk more about that. But on the backside of that nil disaster, the NCAA Board of Governors, through one of its independent members, Bob Gates, announced the formation of this Constitution Committee, and this was supposed to be a transformative overhaul of the entire NCAA governance structure. And the rhetoric that was coming out when Gates announced this committee was really powerful. And it's, you know, this is going to be one of the most important events in the history of the NCAA going back to 1906. And this was going to be transformative and this was going to be fundamental change. And we're going to start from scratch. We have a blank slate and we're just going to reimagine NCAA governance and 
college sports regulation. And there were some really big words that were being tossed around there. And when I started talking about the Constitution Committee in August, I really was skeptical of what this was going to be all about because the timing of it coincided with some really bad news for the NCAA. You had the nil dump on the institutions. Then on August 3rd, you had the release of the Kaplan Gender Equity Report. And even though that was NCAA-sponsored, there was some strong language in the report, and it, it got a lot of press, and it wasn't really the kind of press the NCAA was hoping for, even though it really was controlling the message because it hired Kaplan and dictated the scope of its work. And then on August 11th, you had this Baylor decision, which, as I mentioned in the last episode, was the first time that the NCAA infractions and enforcement process in the Committee on Infractions was forced to acknowledge publicly and to analyze why the NCAA had no jurisdiction to address the really serious problems that occurred at Baylor going back to 2010 and allegations of sexual and other violence against women by Baylor football players. So in this time frame of early August, the NCAA was taking some body blows from a public relations standpoint. My suspicion was that this Constitution Committee was just another grand NCAA smokescreen to divert attention from those issues and to make it appear as if the NCAA had some self-awareness that they were in a position of weakness in August of 2021 that the NCAA had never experienced before. Never. And on August 10th, Gates announced the roster for this Constitution Committee. And there were some red flags there to me. One was that Gates was the face of this movement, not the chair of the Board of Governors, Jack DeJoya, who is the president at Georgetown University, or Mark Emmert, who's the president of the NCAA. And it's my belief, uh, based on my research, that this was the first time that a member of the Board of Governors who was not the chair of that body became the public face for an NCAA initiative. And Gates has an impressive resume, and he served in uh, the Bush White House and the Obama White House. He's had some important jobs, including director of the CIA, and he was also a former university president at Texas A&M. So I think Gates had some some stature here that at least presented the appearance of credibility in this Constitution makeover. But Gates was very coy about what this Constitution Committee was actually going to do. There was all this bold language and these declarations that you get from the NCAA. And the, the word transformative or the phrase transformative change it should be trademarked by the NCAA. It should be a registered mark because they trot that out. Every time they find themselves in a position of weakness or having to defend some aspect of their ridiculous business model, governance model. Mark Emmert used that tagline back in 2017, in October of 2017, when he announced the Commission on College Basketball. Transformative change and codes of silence and bad actors and we have to change and it has to happen immediately, immediately. And now on, on the backside of this Constitution Committee's work, almost all the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball have been completely neutered. All of them. So it sounded to me and felt to me like just more of the same. And this NCAA Constitution Committee was loaded with NCAA insiders. It was exclusively comprised of NCAA insiders at the highest level. This was an inside job. They weren't going to allow anybody from the outside to come in and offer any original thinking 
to this Constitution Committee. So you have the same people with the same thinking in the same close circles trying to solve the problem that they themselves have created. And you're just right back into the Orwellian world, the Alice in Wonderland world of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. So that was kind of my thinking. And they were going to come out with some milk toast report and some recommendations. On the backside, they can say that they really got the message and they understand that they're in a battle for relevance. That's what Bob Gates said, that the NCAA was in a battle for relevance and it needed to really change the way that it did business and the way it thought about its relationship to the people that they regulated. So I'm not holding out hope that we're going to get anything meaningful here. And then on October 27th of 2021, just a couple of months after this Constitution Committee is announced, the Division I Board of Directors announces this transformation committee that is a Division I Board of Directors body. And I did an episode on that and the composition of that committee. And it was really interesting because the chair, one of the co-chairs of that committee is Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC. And as I've said in prior episodes, he right now is probably the most influential person in all of college sports. And the composition of that committee was really interesting to me, in part because you already have a board of directors that has 24 members, and that board's a very powerful board. That board and the Board of Governors are the two most consequential boards in all of college sports and under the NCAA umbrella. And my first question was, why do we need a separate committee to look at the future of Division One? You know, some of the rhetoric that was coming out is that some of these national powers that NCAA had had historically were going to be sent down to the divisions, but they didn't say what those powers were, what specifically the divisions were going to have the authority to do that the national office had had in the past. I surmised that it related in large part to infractions and enforcement, and that's one of the reasons that I started doing my discussion on fractions and enforcement and the NC State case after Gates announced this committee, because ultimately the entire regulatory model is predicated upon what values the NCAA is actually going to stand behind and make enforceable through actual legislation. And in the past, it's only been two things. It's been controlling the labor pool by enforcing the fixed cost of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship. And the other thing is managing the talent acquisition market, all these crazy recruiting rules. Those are the only two areas that the NCAA cares about. It's the only two areas in which they have substantive legislation that would allow them to take any meaningful enforcement action. All these fluffy principles in the Constitution aren't worth the paper they're written on because the NCAA can't enforce them and they have no desire to enforce them. So you really are looking at infractions and enforcement, I think, as the the key issue here. And that's how I frame my analysis. And it turned out that I was absolutely right about that once we started to see these drafts. But this transformation committee is operating as a completely independent body. And under the uh, board of directors structure, the actual board of directors, Division One board of directors, you have 24 members loaded with university presidents and chancellors as part of this presidential movement that came out of the Knight Commission's work in the early 1990s. And you only had, I think, six or seven power five members among that group. I mean, it was definitely dominated by football interests, by FBS interests, power five, group of five. But the power five didn't have a slam dunk controlling voice on that board, particularly if we're looking at fundamental change in the allocation of power between the national regulatory structure in the national office, and then the divisions. So the Transformation Committee was loaded with power five people, and you had uh, 
21 members on that transformation committee, and 11 of them are Power Five representatives. You have Greg Sankey, you have Jerry Moorhead, president of UGA, you have Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor, you have Jim Phillips, the commissioner of the ACC. And instead of having a, a board or a committee, loaded with university presidents and chancellors. You had a small critical mass of university presidents and chancellors, but you had more conference commissioners and athletics directors. And that reflected to me an important shift in the way in which the NCAA was going to think about governance, at least in terms of who has a seat at the table. And these boards dominated by university presidents and chancellors looked like it was going to be giving way through this transformation committee to power structures that were dominated by conference commissioners and athletics directors. And remember, the whole purpose of the presidential leadership and control movement that I think really dates back to the Carnegie Report in 1929 and was pulled forward explicitly by the Knight Commission in connection with its 1991 seminal report, Keeping Faith with the Student-Athlete, in which presidential control over intercollegiate athletics was the centerpiece. But I think that the reason that was so important to the founders of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is that they wanted to take the important decision-making out of the hands of the athletics directors. They didn't want the Walter Byers of the world making decisions that influenced the integrity of higher education or former athletics directors. And that had been the model for NCAA leadership. So when I saw the roster for this transformation committee, the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee, I said, okay, there's something going on here. And this is looking like a power five power grab. And that's exactly what has happened here. And you had the, the first draft constitution come out on November 8th uh, in conjunction with a bunch of NCAA propaganda. And I've talked all about that in prior episodes. And I, maybe I'll list those episodes in the show notes so you can go back and check those out. But what was in that draft constitution was transformational on some of the most important allocations of power as between the Power Five football interests. And this is a football show. It's a Power Five show and it's a Power Five football show. And the NCAA's national office. And there's been tension that really dates back to the 1950s between those two groups of powerful college sports regulators and business actors. And this really, in my judgment, was the logical extension of the belief that the powerful football schools have that they should be treated specially and they wanted absolute autonomy and separation from the rest of the NCAA, but they wanted to do it under the NCAA umbrella. And that constitution, that draft constitution that came out on November 8th did exactly that. That constitutional draft devolved the entire fractions and enforcement process down from the NCAA national office to the divisions. And again, division one is the only thing that matters here. Divisions two and three were bought off. They're irrelevant to this discussion. They're getting what they want. They're getting their piece of the March Madness pie. The NCAA national office got what it wants, or at least uh, Mark Emmert's view of the NCAA national office got what it wants. And that is the preservation of a unified 
NCAA governance structure with the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella, and then the March Madness money being really the sole property of the NCAA. The powerful football interests, I don't think, really care that much about the March Madness money. And as the value of the football product's gone up, the importance of that March Madness money has decreased in the eyes of the big-time powerful football interest decision makers. So this draft constitution was really the template for this Power Five takeover. And part of that, too, was a curtailment of the NCAA president's autonomy in really important matters relating to litigation strategy, to congressional lobbying, to policymaking, to agenda setting, literally agenda setting for board of governors meetings. And the NCAA president was really reduced to a nominal role as the mouthpiece. And the NCAA is still going to be a propagandist, and they're going to need somebody at the helm there who will shamelessly propagandize these false values that the NCAA doesn't stand behind through active legislation. And another important component of this constitutional makeover was a reduction, a massive reduction in the size of the NCAA Board of Governors and a clear de-emphasis on seats held by university presidents or chancellors under this new constitution. There's a requirement that only one, at least one, university president or chancellor sit on the new board of governors. On the old board of governors, it was dominated by university presidents and chancellors by design, again, as a product of this movement towards presidential control over intercollegiate athletics and the concept of institutional control. So we're talking about some really important power shifts here. It's my belief that a lot of the thinking that has gone into this transformation and into the reduction in the national authorities and then sending them down to divisions, importantly Division One, is consistent with the way that Greg Sankey sees the proper role of the NCAA in governance. Some of Sankey's comments that came out even before the formation of this transformation committee, you see that some of the things that he was most critical of, like the infractions and enforcement process and the lack of transparency in some of this decision-making relating to these really important issues of litigation strategy, lobbying, public positioning, and all that, those criticisms have been given life in this new constitution. And of course, with Sankey in the driver's seat on this transformation committee, he's really, I think, going to be an architect of what this governance model looks like going forward. The reason that I have this in my top 10 is despite all of the hype and the overhype, and I'll just note this too, after all this talk early on about transformational change, and this is a fundamental overhaul, and this is one of the most important things that NCAA has ever done. Both Robert Gates in interviews and Mark Emmert tried to walk that back a little bit and to try to make it seem like this wasn't as important as it was. And it is important, but not for the reasons that Emmert and Gates originally offered back in August of 2021. What's important about this makeover is that the presidential control and responsibility movement is over. It's done. Stick a fork in it. And the other thing that's so important is that the Power Five will now have control over the infractions and enforcement process, and they won't subject themselves to the random, arbitrary, and capricious and asymmetrical approach and tactics that the 
NCAA National Office and Fractions and Enforcement staff has used really going back to the Walter Byers years. So you have the Power Five getting something that they've wanted all along. And I'm going to talk about that when I talk about the autonomy movement, this movement in 2013, 2014, where the Power Five as a group basically bullied their way into complete segregation from the rest of the NCAA. And they had their own association within an association. And as as part of that movement, Back in 2013, 2014, what the Power Five were arguing for in part was their own enforcement and infractions process because they just felt like the stakes were too high for the Power Five and they couldn't afford their fate to be left to the NCAA infractions and enforcement staff. It was just fraught with conflicts of interest and their tactics were almost impossible to justify and their decisions impossible to reconcile. That change has been made and the Power Five's in the driver's seat. So this turns out to be much more consequential than I thought it was going to be when I first saw this in early August of 2021. But the script isn't fully written. We just have these broad principles and this shift in, in power and the elimination of presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics, the reduction in the role of the NCAA president. And you have the Power Five basically running the show. But what we don't know is what the details are. And that will reveal itself over the next eight months. This constitution is going to be ratified on January 7th. And then according to the timetable set forth by the Division I Board of Directors, they're going to have all the details worked out by August. And as those details are worked out, we're really going to see, I think, what some of the thinking was behind the scenes that led to this Power Five power grab. All right. Number four on Big Amateurism's Top 10 of 20. 21. And that is the NCAA waving the white flag on name, image, and likeness seven hours and 40 minutes before the July 1st deadline when a number of state name, image, and likeness laws went into effect. And in the last episode, I talked about the importance of those June hearings and the NCAA's last ditch attempt to try to get at least preemption. When they came into Congress and really started lobbying behind the scenes in 2019, but in that first hearing in February of 2020 in a subcommittee of Senate Commerce, you had the NCAA laying the foundation for this audacious regulatory power grab. And it had these three really important components. One was antitrust immunity. The other was that that would eliminate federal courts as external regulatory threats. Then you have the preemption provision, which would have nullified any state law, nil laws or any other law that interfered with NCAA compensation limits. And then you had this request that the federal government issue a declaration that athletes could not be deemed employees of their universities. And as things played out and we had these nil laws going into effect in July, the NCAA really limited their focus to preemption. They just wanted to get these state nil laws off the books. And that was their first order of business. And I talked about that June 9th hearing, which was really a preemption hearing, and then how that kind of got upset with this June 17th athlete hearing. And then, of course, you had the Austin decision on June 21st, something I didn't include because I actually just ran across it. I was looking for something else in the congressional record. And I noticed that on June 14th, so between this June 9th preemption hearing and then this athlete hearing on June 17th, Jerry Moran, who 
is a Republican senator from Kansas and the author of a bill, a terrible bill that would basically eliminate the athletes' rights movement and put the Power Five and NCAA in charge of enforcement at the federal level. It would federalize the name, image, and likeness market and other aspects of the college sports business model, the NCAA business model. He put that out in February of 2021, and I've talked a lot about it. I haven't done a standalone episode on it, but I will. But Jerry Moran took to the full floor of the Senate on June 14th of 2021 to make a pitch and a plea for the passage of his bill. And I tracked down a a copy of uh, Moran's speech to the full Senate, and he is literally on his knees begging the Senate to take up his bill and to pass it, and then it can get marked up and, and all this stuff. He was desperate to get for the NCAA and the Power Five some immediate relief from these state name, image, and likeness laws. And Moran's trying to present himself as a champion of athletes' rights, and he's opened his speech talking about this is about doing something good for student-athletes and name, image, and likeness and all this BS. But he was making an explicit plea for preemption. And that's clearly what he wanted. That was clearly the purpose of this June 9th hearing. So you have the June 9th hearing with all these preemption yes people. Then you had Jerry Moran's plea to the full Senate. Then you had this athlete hearing on June 17th. And then, of course, you had the Austin decision on June 21st. And that just put a nail in the coffin on any possibility that the NCAA and Power Five were going to get preemption relief before July 1st. And the, the sense of urgency, both in that June 9th hearing And then also in this Moran speech is really, really telling, I think. It also suggests that the other strategies that the NCAA was considering really had been reprioritized. I said early on in talking about how calculated the NCAA has been in its engagement with Congress and its attempt to get these three powerful federal protections and immunities that would result in the biggest regulatory power grab in the history of American sports. But I said that they don't do anything unless they have a plan. And people forget, you know, the the news cycle moves so fast and so many things have happened in 2021 that it's so easy to lose sight of the positions that the NCAA has taken on name, image, and likeness. Going back really to 2005 and these video game issues that were the genesis for the O'Bannon suit and the NCAA's staunch opposition to any compensation that relates to name, image, and likeness. And they spent $140 million in O'Bannon to prevent athletes from getting a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation. When you go back and look at the congressional record in 2020 and these hearings that were held by NCAA-friendly Republican chair people like Roger Wicker and Lindsey Graham and Lamar Alexander, you see the extent to which they were hostile, openly hostile to name, image, and likeness. It was just this Trojan horse that they were using. Yeah, we're going to talk about name, image, and likeness and athlete compensation, but we want to make clear that it ain't going to happen, you know, or it's going to happen in a way where we call Call it nil compensation, but these athletes are going to be prevented from any meaningful opportunity to exploit that marketplace. It's just not going to happen. And that was the way things rolled through 2020. But remember, the other thing that the NCAA was talking about at the same time, one was this voluntary rulemaking that died in January of 2021, as I discussed in the last episode. And that was always a ruse. That was just a shiny object to distract attention from what the the NCAA and Power Five were doing in Congress and also in federal litigation, and particularly in this Austin suit. But back in the fall of 2019, when the California law, the Fair Pay to Play Act, 
was passed. And I remember again, too, that wasn't going to be effective. It wasn't going to go into effect until 2023. And the California Assembly made very clear that they were hoping the NCAA was going to do something voluntarily, and they were giving the NCAA some breathing room. And the NCAA turned around and said, up yours to the California Assembly and to California Governor Gavin Newsom. And they were threatening a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit under the Dormant Commerce Clause. That would have been a litigation pathway to getting preemption, to eliminate state legislatures from the regulatory field under a principle of uniformity and that it would be an undue burden on interstate commerce for the NCAA to have to comply with 50 different standards in 50 different states. And there's some precedent to to that effect, but they're talking about suing the state of California. So you have this aggressive initial response, which is consistent with their prior approach to nil and saying that this is a line in the sand we're not going to cross and this will be the end of college sports as we know it and all the usual garbage. Then they softened their stance and then they co-opted the nil debate in Congress through their lobbyists and tried to make it seem like they really were serious about uh, name, image, and likeness compensation. They had no intention of doing that. And then as the campaign in the Senate started to fall apart when the Republicans lost control in the January special elections in in early January 2021, the NCAA started scrambling. Then you had these attempts to try to manipulate Maria Cantwell, who was the new chair of the Commerce Committee, and Commerce has original jurisdiction over sports issues. And, you know, Cantwell's not exactly a wholehearted champion of athletes' rights and revenue-producing athletes' rights. In fact, in that July 1st, 2020 hearing in Commerce, where she was in the minority, she was the the lead Democrat on that committee, but she wasn't in control. Roger Wicker was, but Cantwell is saying she supports amateurism and she wants to preserve the collegiate model and she's concerned about the impact on women and non-revenue athletes, all the, the talking points. And she said that she supported a national standard. So Cantwell, on that issue, on preemption, And on some basic philosophical questions about amateurism and the basic business model, she's not that far apart from Roger Wicker or Lindsey Graham or Lamar Alexander or Marco Rubio or Jerry Moran or any of the Republicans that were doing the NCAA's bidding through 2020 and into 2021. So that shift, that switch from Wicker to Cantwell, that was important because I think it gave the other Democrats on the committee a a little more power. But Cantwell, as the leader, she's trying to play it down the middle and she's trying to work on a bipartisan solution. And so she deferred to Jerry Moran. She deferred to Roger Wicker and they were way ahead of her. They were running circles around her. Her understanding of the issues was very thin. And the way that she articulated her support of the, the business model and amateurism and the collegiate model was comical because she got her words all mixed up and it was clear that she wasn't fluent in the lingo. But she had this philosophical bend that was not inconsistent with what the Republicans had wanted. But the things that played out in June, I think, just turned that debate upside down and inside out. And it was clear that the NCAA was not going to get preemption before July 1st, despite their valiant last-ditch efforts. And then I think, and I talked about this, this dormant commerce clause option, the option of filing a federal lawsuit against, say, the state of Florida, once that law went into effect and the issue was ripe legally, and saying, this is a violation of the dormant commerce clause. We're going to get an injunction suspending the implementation of this law, and we're going to pursue our lawsuit. And if we win, then all these state laws just disappear. 
and all this activity at the state legislative level, it just disappears. We didn't hear that much about the Dormant Commerce Clause case. And at that June 9th hearing, Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz specifically asked Emmert whether or not the NCAA was going to file a Dormant Commerce Clause lawsuit. And he bobbed and weaved and he went into the rope-a-dope. And Schatz really pressed him and said, look, I'm not going to let you do that. I, I want to know what your opinion is. Mark Emmert, as the president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And Emmert gave some coy response that, well, no decision's been made and, and at this point and all this BS. But it's my belief that that option was still on the table as the congressional option, this emergency option to get preemption was going down the, the tubes. And then with the Austin decision, you had, I think, the NCAA saying, there's no way in hell that we can file a dormant commerce clause lawsuit. And I believe they had one in the hopper ready to go. And again, it wouldn't have been ripe until July 1st when these laws actually went into effect. So you had some really uh, interesting options in play at the time, but the death of preemption after that June 17th hearing didn't mean the death of the commerce clause lawsuit. But the fact that the Supreme Court came out with a unanimous ruling basically telling the NCAA, you're not special, really, I think, put this dormant commerce clause lawsuit option on ice. There's no way after that beating that you march into federal court and make the case that you are special. So then what's the next option? So your congressional preemptions off the table, your dormant commerce clause option is off the table, your voluntary rulemaking option is off the table because it was never really on the table. So what do you do? You huddle with your lawyers and your lobbyists and your spin doctors, and you try to come up with a plan D. And plan D was to just take all of the NCAA's nil garbage and dump it at the feet of the institutions, the member institutions. And I think it's also important to understand that the member institutions, particularly the Division I, Power Five interests, where people thought most of this nil activity was going to occur and where the compensation limits are so important to the business model, they reasonably believed that the NCAA and all its silk-stocking lawyers and lobbyists and public relations people were going to have some kind of federal protection in place that would eliminate the nil market, at least temporarily, and alleviate any concerns about having to deal with name, image, and likeness. And then if that didn't work, then they were could reasonably assume that the NCAA was going to take care of it through federal litigation. When all this fell apart and this got dumped into the laps of the institutions, they had no infrastructure in place. And I think they were just waiting to, to get this federal protection and then they were going to do at the institutional level what they've done historically with respect to national rules and regulations and national edicts from the NCAA, or in this case, from the federal government through congressional action. And that was to just put policies in place and have protocols that conformed to what other people had already decided. Now the institutions had to decide for themselves what these name, image, and likeness policies were going to look like. And it has been a cluster muck. And there is chaos, not because there's an intrinsic problem with the name, image, and likeness market. There's chaos because of the last minute dump. And if these universities had known six months before July 1st that there was a very strong likelihood that this would be dumped at their feet, they would have been prepared. It's my belief that you, you can't even now track whether or not this nil market 
in the states that have nil laws are complying with those state laws. It's a direct product of the NCAA's arrogance and incompetence. And it was an unconscionable dump. Now, I think what's going to happen, and this is just one of these incredible ironies, is that they're going to look at the chaos that was created by Mark Emmert's failure of leadership and his arrogance and incompetence. And they're going to go back to Congress through the power five interests and their lobbyists and say, look what happened. You said you wanted nil. Well, here it is. And it looks like just a complete cluster muck. But again, it's not because of the nil compensation opportunities themselves, it's because of NCAA incompetence. You know, one of the challenges now for the Power Five, since I think they're going to be in control of the next re-engagement with Congress, but one of the challenges is going to be to reformulate the argument against nil. And when you're asking for preemption, you're making an argument against nil and against the existing market. And the longer that market is in place, the more difficult it's going to be to make that case. Because remember, when the NCAA was making its anti-nil arguments in Congress, it was saying that it needed all these federal protections and immunities as a precondition to the existence of any name, image, and likeness compensation or opportunities to make sure that all of these core values of the NCAA amateurs and the student athlete, the collegiate model, were protected first. And then we'll talk about nil if there's anything left over. And in my judgment, there would be nothing left over because you can't have compensation under values and principles that prohibit compensation. And you're back to this Orwellian discussion about nil. But with this nil market and the nil activity that really doesn't tell us a story yet. We just don't have enough data. We don't have enough market information. We don't know what this is going to look like in two years or five years or 10 years. I said in the last episode, it took the college football marketplace almost 30 years to reorganize itself after Board of Regents. It's going to take a while for this nil market to find its level. And we don't know what that's going to be. But right now, there's all this chaos. But you also have schools, some of the very schools that sent representatives to Congress or were making public comments against nil. They're saying this is the greatest thing since sliced bread because they believe they have found a way to turn it into a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. So <laughs> you have these conflicting values now. And when the Power Five go back to Congress, Congress, it's going to be real interesting because the initial purpose of their engagement with Congress is gone now because the nil market exists and it exists without all these federal protections and immunities. And it hasn't resulted in the fatal collapse of college sports as we knew them. So that myth has been buried. So now you're going to have a very kind of challenging thread the needle type of argument to say, yeah, this no market's here and we're still playing football games, but we still need this preemption. And we need to have a national governing entity that we control so that we have complete control over the federalized nil marketplace. That's going to be a tough sell. It's going to be uh, tough in part because of the NCAA's mismanagement of its first uh, campaign, its first engagement with Congress through the NCAA starting in 2019. So it remains to be seen what this nil marketplace is ultimately going to look like. But all of the dysfunction in the market that people are, are talking about. Nobody's talking about how well it's working or how really irrelevant it is through large swaths of even Division One, because there just aren't really lucrative nil opportunities. It's kind of nickel and dime stuff. But nobody's talking about how it's working. 
or what the overall impact is. We're getting all these sensationalized stories, which you would expect in a market that's been suppressed for decades. You, know, you have, finally have free market principles operating, and you, you have these deals that are getting covered like the moon landing, although we don't really see what those deals are. And you're drawing conclusions right away, and you want to put the lid on this after, what, six, nine months or a year of uh, name, image, and likeness market activity and say, oh, well, it's a failure. They didn't do that with college football in 1985 or 1986. Two years after Border Regents is, oh, this is a failure. Let's just turn this back over to the NCAA and let's have them control all the televised football market interests. And the other thing that is important to note is that people, I think, believe that if the NCAA is taken off the table and you have the Power Five sitting in the iron throne of college sports regulation, that that's going to be a great thing for athletes. And that ignores the fact that the NCAA and Power Five at the values level were marching in lockstep through their congressional campaign in 2019, 2020, and most of 2021. And I went back recently and looked at Greg Sankey's testimony in the Senate Commerce Committee on July 1st of 2020. This was in really the heat of the congressional campaign when the Republicans controlled the Senate, when they had the upper hand, when the Austin suit was really on the sidelines, it wasn't a prominent part of the discussion. And you didn't have any state name, image, and likeness laws that were going to be going into effect immediately. The NCAA had controlled the narrative. The Power Five had controlled the narrative. And they were getting their way in Congress through these Republican-friendly senators who tore up their free market speeches and swallowed their Tenth Amendments. Because instead of arguing for free markets and states' rights, they're arguing for big government intervention. But Sankey testified at that hearing in his capacity as the commissioner of the SEC. And when you look at what he said, his thinking at the values level is at least as hostile to athletes' rights as the NCAA's position has been for decades. So Sankey starts by talking about avoiding unintended consequences and students must not be employers. And he was channeling Roger Wicker, who chaired that committee, who opened the hearing, and it was all gloom and doom. And he's skeptical and he thinks there are all kinds of problems. And the first principle is do no harm, and we have to protect all these values, and on and on and on. The, the template was set from the very beginning that nil was bad news, and we're going to hold our nose and pretend to do something good for the athletes, but it's going to be built around principles that make nil compensation almost impossible. Sankey goes on to say, we also have to protect the academic environment, suggesting that nil activity was going to interfere with athletes' academic pursuits. And then he says, that number two, he did these in bullet points. Number two, we must not allow college athletics to devolve into a pay-for-play system. So no pay from the universities. And he cited to the California nil law as this, as this great threat, even though that law wasn't going into effect until 2023. Third, he said, look, there's no draft process in college sports. So we have this open recruiting market and we have to protect the recruiting environment. We can't let name, image, and likeness pollute the recruiting environment. <laughs> that, that environment's been polluted in so many ways, it's almost hard to keep up with them. And then number four, he says, we must have protections for these student athletes. We really got to protect their interests from these outside parties, which is code for bad actors. And he talks about the agents and these third-party contractors. He wants to make sure that these athletes aren't taken advantage of. Boy, we really worry about these athletes. And then number five, he says, look, we need a federal law. We need one national standard. And he used the buzzword, a uniform system. We can't have 50 different laws. All this propaganda about uh, preemption. He doesn't use the word preemption. 
This is all about uniformity and consistency and fairness and one standard. Then he closes with a, a pitch for antitrust immunity. So he is right down the line, NCAA all the way. And there is not an inch of separation from the propaganda he was serving up in the Senate in July of 2020 from all the propaganda that Mark Emmert was serving up beginning back in February of 2020. And I just want to say one more thing before I leave Greg Sankey's testimony. And this was true for all of the testimony in these hearings in 2020 and in the Senate in, in 2021. And this really ties back into this the work of this Constitution Committee. But all of these narratives revolved around name, image, and likeness and the ways in which the system would be harmed by name, image, and likeness and how status quo values were under assault and how we needed to protect those. But in all of these discussions, there was no conversation about the basic governance structure, how these decisions were going to be made. And how the various stakeholders were going to have input into these decisions. I found that really interesting, particularly with this new Constitution Committee, where the stakeholders are saying, look, we're not going to make any important decisions until we fundamentally make over the entire governance structure of college sports through the NCAA umbrella, because it is broken and it hasn't worked for a long time. And those issues are completely independent of any specific substantive issue like nil or like transfer or like what the role of amateurism is going to be. We're talking about structural issues that have crippled intelligent, thoughtful, efficient regulatory actions through the NCAA. And that goes back for decades, but not a single word of that, not a single breath of that in any of these seven hearings. And I just find it really ironic that we have people like Greg Sankey now leading the charge on this fundamental governance overhaul and a complete redistribution and reallocation of powers in the college sports regulatory market. But everything was perfectly fine in that regard in July of 2020. You have to ask yourself, and, and I believe this to be the case, if the NCAA had gotten any of the things that it was trying to get to protect its role as the national regulator, the sole national regulator. And that's what this whole congressional campaign was all about. It was about eliminating external regulators and putting the NCAA in the iron throne of college sports at the national level. So all this discussion in the Constitution Committee about sending this down to the divisions, none of that conversation existed in 2020 because everybody was happy with the status quo. And I have said before, and I just think it's so important to keep this in mind, that if the NCAA had gotten any of the things it was asking for in 2020, either from the United States Congress or from the United States Supreme Court, we're not having any discussion about this Constitution Committee. This Constitution Committee doesn't exist. This makeover doesn't exist. The status quo would have been preserved as a matter of federal law and everything was going to just sail along hunky-dory under the old status quo, which makes a mockery of the urgency with which decision makers in the constitutional makeover have pushed this thing through. What this is, in its essence, is that the NCAA failed miserably to try to get the status quo protected at the federal level. And now the Power Five's taken over and they're going to try to do in 2022 or 2023 what the NCAA couldn't get done in 2020. All right.
So now we are down to number three. And that is the new transfer rule that allows athletes to transfer once for free. By that, uh, I mean, under the old rules, if you transferred, you had to sit out a year and basically lose a year in order to play for another school. You could apply for a waiver, but that process was inconsistent and unreliable. In a lot of cases, athletes who made good cases didn't get the waiver granted, so they had to sit out. Under this new transfer rule, these athletes don't have to sit out a year. They get this one-time one transfer for free. That issue has been on the table for decades. The NCAA dragged its feet, and there were advocacy groups that were pushing for that. And finally, it, it came to pass. I'm not super fluent with how that market is operating. So I'm going to talk about it really at the 30,000 foot level. But I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, it's taken so long for the NCAA to do what it's been talking about for decades under pressure, you know, just like some of these other movements in the market. Number two is that you had all of these cries about how that's going to kill college sports as we know it. It's another one of those things that's going to bring college sports to a fatal collapse. And we're going to have a perpetual free agency. And it's going to upend the talent market and rosters are going to be depleted when people transfer and all that stuff. The fact of the matter is that there's little evidence that that's happening. Is it unfortunate if you want college sports to be the way that it was in the 1960s and 1970s? And you wanted players to stay in school, to graduate, and to have some continuity in the program and have a group of players and athletes that fans could identify with. I, I really miss, particularly in college basketball, I miss the format where these players were staying for four years. Maybe they left after their junior year if they were really a top prospect. But I, I liked seeing the teams evolved. I liked seeing players mature. I loved seeing uh, a senior have a breakout season after three years of frustration and disappointment. That, to me, is part of what makes college sports great. I'm not a fan of the volatility that the transfer market has enabled. But all that said, that's my that's my old guy thinking. That's my <laughs> wishful thinking. And it is completely at odds with the realities of the business model. And those realities are not the product of selfish athletes who want to jump ship and turn their back on teams they committed to. It's the product of these big time powerful football interests and all of the Power Five university presidents who were supposed to be putting the brakes on all this commercialization and professionalization, insisting on the most professionalized version of college sports in the marketplace. And so it's only fair that if these coaches are signing $10 million contracts and, and then they're jumping ship, and if they get fired without having violated their contract, then you have these guys getting this massive pile of cash. The amount of money that's in the buyout market is in the hundreds of millions of dollars if you add it all up. So you've had volatility in the coaching market for decades, and now it's on steroids. You cannot point to the athletes who simply want to have the same opportunity, particularly when the coach that they committed to goes to another school to take more money. And prior to this transfer rule, 
That happened all the time. And what people don't understand about the decisions that players make is that they're not really choosing the university as a university and looking really at the what the degree offerings are and what the pedigree is going to be if they get their degree. I mean, some do and some factor that in. But I think in the aggregate, high-profile athletes in football and men's basketball are choosing programs and coaches. That's the commitment that they make. Those are the terms on which they're recruited. The university president isn't coming to recruit them. The chair of the chemistry department isn't coming to recruit them. It's the head coach and athletics interests. That's the relationship. That's a true relationship. So when you make that commitment to a coach in a program and then that coach leaves, you're in a tough spot because the coach that comes in may not have much use for you, may play a completely different style. You may not have been the kind of player he would have recruited in the first place. He's going to recruit over you and it's going to be years of agony and misery. And that has that storyline has played out time and time and time again. And you just don't read about it because it's not part of the feel-good narrative. But this transfer rule at least equalizes the, the playing field in those situations where the coaches just go and take the money. And people at ESPN and Yahoo Sports and Fox and all these columnists and mainstream media, they're not saying that the coaches shouldn't take that money. They're saying, hey, yeah, this is America. This is a free market. You go where you can maximize your market value for the talents that you have. You know? <laughs> and the irony of making that argument for the coaches who are getting paid salaries that are inflated because the labor isn't paid. The irony of that is just shocking when they're not saying the same thing about the athletes, the people whose talents and labors provide uh, a large measure of the value in the overall product. So I think it's a good thing. But the other thing I would observe about this transfer market is how quickly the business side adapts to a new normal. And I think just like with name, image, and likeness, you have with this transfer market, coaches and programs and schools who are looking at this as an opportunity to gain a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market and to manage their rosters differently. And then you have coaches who are bemoaning it because they're having star players leave and go somewhere else. And, you know, it's one of those things I think the market will settle out. And I think that the relationships that these coaches have to their players might change for the better if they know that these kids can leave if they're unhappy and they're not locked in to staying with a school, or if they leave, they have to pay a heavy price. So, you know, let's let it play out. But what's interesting, you go to ESPN now, and in addition to these recruiting predictions, so there's a huge sub-market in the college sports world in terms of identifying talent and ranking players, and there are websites devoted exclusively to that, and that's really one of the primary items for message board fodder, who's being recruited, who are they considering, where are they going to go? And you have all these lists almost immediately and seamlessly into the list of available talent and where it might land are transfers in, in the transfer market. So when they're listing the programs that benefited in recruiting, they're not just talking anymore about players that came from high school. They're talking about players are getting in the transfer portal. And they're not saying this is a bad thing. It's just a new market to exploit. So now we have special lists that are just for the transfer market. And there's speculation about who's going to go where. And it's just a new revenue stream for the in-system stakeholders and on the sports entertainment media side. And for the coaches, they're faced with a decision of how they're going to respond to that new market. It is essentially a new labor market. 
I think that from a business model standpoint, from a free competition standpoint, from a fairness standpoint, and from a reality-based perspective on the business of big-time college sports in the 21st century, it makes total sense. Would I prefer that players stayed for four years and got their degree and had a sense of loyalty to the school and that the coaches stuck around and showed loyalty to the kids? Would, would I prefer that? Yes, I would love that. I would love those days to, to come back. But that's wishful thinking. That's outdated thinking. I'm the grumpy old guy on the couch at the Thanksgiving dinner pining about the old times. I'm in that character when I'm thinking about it the way I'm thinking about it. But I recognize intellectually that this transfer market is a great thing for the athletes to have. And who knows, maybe after years of market data, you can come back and take a look at it. And if it turns out to be so disruptive that it's just unworkable and you have roster instability that's so substantial that schools are being put out of business in the span of one year because their talent all leaves. Or a coach like Lincoln Riley leaves Oklahoma, goes to USC, and all of a sudden the transfer portal out of Oklahoma is chock full. It's clogged. <laughs> but nobody's saying that that's a problem with the coaching market. They're saying that's a problem with the transfer market. But I think that's important, and that's why I ranked it so high. But there's a lot of data we don't have. There are some things that are going to have to play out. But I think that's a good thing. And then the other thing I just want to say, and this goes back to the nil issue, because these two issues have been linked. And people are saying, people who oppose nil, and they're trying to create these narratives, that the sky is falling, and this is going to be the end of college sports as we know it, and this is horrible, and this is professional sports and free agency. And they're saying that these athletes are leaving because they can get a better nil deal at another school. And I don't see any evidence of that. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal about this kid, a quarterback at Ohio State. I can't even remember his name, but he was a stud quarterback and he originally signed with Texas. But then after the Texas coach left for another job, this quarterback then changed his commitment and he signed with Ohio State. My first take on that was, yeah, he made the commitment to a coach and a program, and that coach is gone, and the program may be different, and he may not get what he expected under this new coach. So he goes and signs with Ohio State that has a depth chart at quarterback that a lot of NFL franchises would envy, and he doesn't get any playing time. And then he decides to go back to Texas, and now people in the media in this Wall Street Journal article were trying to make the case that this was driven by name, image, and likeness. And I just don't see that. These players, yeah, name, image, and likeness could be a marginal factor, just like any of the other factors you consider when you're choosing a school, a program, and a coach. But this kid, I think, is going to Texas because he's going to get playing time. He took only a couple snaps at Ohio State. These kids need the exposure. They want the platform. And he thinks he can get it at Texas now better than he can at Ohio State. Good for him. But trying to portray that as an exclusively nil-driven decision is ridiculous. We don't know the extent to which these nil opportunities may be influencing athletes, but these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who are trying to turn the clock back to the status quo that existed before July 1st of 2021, I think are a really overreaching, trying to make the case that the nil opportunities are driving the transfer market. But again, let's wait and see. Let's look at the data. Let's actually look at the data. Isn't that what we do in higher education? Don't we use evidence-based outcome analyses 
Don't we want to look at the evidence and the data to see what's really happening? And don't we want to have some peer-reviewed studies? You know, where's all that? We don't need that. We just need some puppet spouting Pow 5 interest saying that the sky is falling and college sports as we know it is coming to an end because athlete A transferred to a school where he could get a better name, image, and likeness deal. So anyway, that's going to close it out for this episode. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about number two. And I'm going to do a single episode on number two because it requires some background and bringing you up to speed and then talking about the consequences of this thing that happened that have little to do with the actual issues at play in that event. And I'm trying not to tell you what it is, but you can probably guess. Anyway, I'll keep you in suspense. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm-hmm.